The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Room the Balls, where I, Katie, will speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Yorkshire. She attended Gateway School for Girls and Leeds Girls High School before going on to study law at New College, Cambridge. After Cambridge, she became a barrister and was appointed a QC aged 40. However, she gave up her legal life for a political one. In 2015, she entered Parliament and has since risen through the parliamentary ranks, holding a number of ministerial roles, including Solicitor General, Financial Secretary to the Treasury and Minister of State for Housing and Planning. Earlier this year, my guest was appointed as the Secretary of State for Culture. My guest today is Lucy Fraser. So Lucy, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Um, We begin by asking the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? I would. I think I had a very happy childhood. Um, My parents were really supportive. So I've got two sisters. I grew up in Leeds and uh, they supported us whatever we wanted to do. So, you know, I went to Cambridge. I studied law, but both my sisters left school at 16. One went to beauty school, one went to drama school. And they, you know, they supported us whatever our choices were and whatever we chose to do. And I had the most phenomenal grandma who I think gave me a lot of my values. She was a really powerful voice, a powerful person in our lives by the, what she did, and she'd been a barrister, and that's probably why I went down that route. Um, yeah, you mentioned that you went to Cambridge. Obviously, your sisters took different routes. So does that mean were you the girly swat? Obviously, I'm using someone else's language here of the family. No, I don't like that phrase. I did, look, I did work hard. I did work hard. Education was really... Um, something that my grandma thought was very powerful, um, really instilled in me by my parents. So I did take advantage of the educational opportunities that I was given. And then I just wondered, you've mentioned, and we'll come on to this a bit later, that you weren't that political growing up, that, that happened a bit later in life. So was politics something that was ever discussed around the dinner table growing up or, you know, in terms of what your parents did professions or, or not so much? Not really, no. I think we, I think I have very strong values so, as I mentioned, my grandma sort of instilled this thing in us about, you know, you need to aim high, work hard. Education is the answer to, you know, making the most of your life. And so I had, we had a very strong family, I would say, for a very strong sense of family. Um, so those were my values, which I think are core conservative values. So I've always been a conservative, but I've never always been political. Yeah, and perhaps does that mean you, perhaps you've always been conservative, but you wouldn't have necessarily described yourself as that? Um, I would have described. Oh, yeah. It was very clear to me that I was always going to vote conservative. It's very clear that I was a conservative, but I didn't get involved in politics. So at university, um, I, I ended up being president of the Cambridge Union, uh, which some would say was very political, but I wasn't very involved in CUCA, which was the Conservative Association. So I did get involved in political things. But I wasn't like one of those people that sort of scheme and do those sort of things that you associate with politics or discuss ideology at length. Yeah, plotting came later. (laughs) I've never (laughs) been a plotter. I am not a plotter. I believe in getting on and doing the work, not plotting. Um, If you're at the union, does that mean that you quite like an argument? 
Yes, I think that's one of the reasons why people used to say to me, you should be a barrister. I do like an argument. I like thinking of, uh, so I really enjoyed being a barrister because, you know, you have sort of the opportunity to just sit down and analyse a huge amount of information and work out what the arguments are that appeal. So I did I did that as a job. I did that as a job for 17 years. I loved it. And I do quite like, yes, putting an argument together. Now, we will go on to your career properly in a second, but just, just before we do, am I right in uh, thinking you're descended from Jewish immigrants? So I wondered, did you have a particularly religious upbringing? No, it wasn't religious. Uh, I'd say traditional. So that in, in Judaism, the family is very important. You have a lot of meals together. Um, you know, Friday night is a thing. So I'd say a very traditional upbringing, but not a religious one. And then on the Cambridge Union, I wondered, you mentioned, of course, uh, you weren't getting involved in, say, the conservative society at that time, but we often hear about the famous alumni from these different years. Were there any uh, others in the union at the time who were now in politics or elsewhere today? Yes. So Gavin Barwell. So I was yeah. the secretary when Gavin Barwell was the president. So I knew Gavin. Um, I didn't know him, but I invited Michael Gove to come and speak in my presidential debate. And he said yes? He said yes, he came. But, and, uh, but I didn't know him. So those were the probable, probably the only two people who I knew in pure politics. And after university, did you intern with the Israeli Ministry of Justice? I did, yes. Yeah. What was that experience like? So I actually did a few things in that year. So I knew I wanted to be a barrister. But just before I thought, Let, I'm taking that step, I thought I'd I really wanted to do something where I made a difference. And I thought before I go down that journey, I, I wanted to try and work for a number of organizations that I thought were key instigators of change. So I spent three months interning in Israel for the Ministry of Justice. Um, I spent a short period of time in New York working for the UN. And I spent a number of months doing a stage at the European Commission. And it was an active year. It was a very active year. A year off. (laughs) I had another year off as well, which was significantly less active, much more traveling and fun. And look, they were really, really, it was a really interesting year. Uh, I learned a lot, but I would say probably, I would say I was a little bit disappointed because I was so junior in all of those, you know, I was just interning. They didn't really see sort of the change happening or you know how you could make a difference but they were all fascinating experiences um now you eventually became a qc which is obviously uh, hard to achieve very prestigious so i wondered if you could given we have time constraints on this podcast talk us through i suppose your first job in law to getting to that point and in terms of what was it like when you first uh, started as a barrister it's very competitive so to become a barrister is really really competitive and a lot of people put you off going down that road because a lot of people who go down it don't actually achieve it. And it's not very financially stable because you don't, you have to, I mean, when I went to bar school, it was £5,000, I think, for bar school. Now it's significantly more. It's not financially stable journey. You're effectively self-employed when you... You're effectively self-employed. There's lots of reasons not to do it. Um, but I, as I said, my grandma was a barrister. She was a first female barrister in Leicester. She was this significant role model. And I thought it was a great job. As you said, I love arguing. So I thought it was the job for me. And it's a great job. Uh, it's a great job because you're doing something I think is valuable, which is contributing to people's justice and sense of justice. It's really intellectually stimulating. You're spending your day analyzing arguments. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge amount of hard work, but you're self-employed. If you work hard, you win. 
you know, if you work hard on a case, there's a direct correlation between that and winning. So it's a very meritocratic job. And the work-life balance means actually you can see your family. So if I had a sports day or an awards or a parents' evening, I didn't miss any. I went to every single one. At the same time, I was working quite hard. Is that because you were choosing your hours or just... Well, you can just say I'm not available. So most of the time, the the work I did, um, I would prepare a lot for any case. I could work for six months on a case and then go to court. So you're not in court. So there's not like things in your diary that are immovable. And you could say, I'm not going to court on that day. You can't fix the hearing for that day because I've got a commitment. You don't need to see what the commitment is. So there's a really, I think, a re- I found a really good work-life balance for someone who likes working quite hard. And when you first start out and you're obviously speaking in the courtroom, did you get like nerves originally that get better the longer you go? Or were you immediately like, I've got this? <laughs> I loved doing court the best bit of my job was going to court but yeah I was always nervous I was always nervous in the same I think that's part of you know good performances you know it being something important so I was always a little bit nervous for going to court I suppose just the final thing on that you mentioned you obviously your grandmother the first in her area at the time you became a barrister was it particularly laddie or at that actually quite a lot of women coming up very few women I mean in my terms I did largely insolvency and commercial work it's not uh, so even within the work that I was doing at the bar, it was quite male oriented. Um, so a lot of things, for example, that I would go to socially, you know, when they do like networking type things would be with insolvency practitioners, largely a male profession. And there were very few women in my chambers, very few fe- senior women in my chamber so people will say you know being an MP you know there aren't very many women for me it was fantastic to become an MP because suddenly I had quite a lot of female colleagues I mean I did have female colleagues and and lovely friends but not the same number and does that did that coincide with the activities when you socialized them was it kind of like state club type things or you, know, you didn't if you were hanging out with all the male barristers what kind of things we did it we remember we did in chambers because we did have a few women and we decided one day to have um like a female networking event and we invited all the female instructing solicitors that we knew and we had this and we actually went to the sanctuary you know some common garden i don't know whether yeah. the sanctuary is still there um and do you know what really struck me was that we spent the whole time talking about work-life balance and then it struck me because I think like the next day I went to a normal drinks reception networking thing and, and uh, it, the conversations were so different because everyone was there was talking about their cases. You know, there were everyone was saying how brilliantly they'd done in court that day. And I, I did reflect how differently women work, how women talk about themselves, how women uh, get on. And uh, I think we should probably talk about work rather than work life balance a little more. Um, now, at what point, obviously, you're having a very successful career in law. At what point do you think, I want to become a political person, I want to work in politics? So it wasn't that I wanted to become a political person, but that sense of um, wanting to make change and do stuff and get stuff done and and have a life that was you know worthwhile and inputting was something that was with me before I became a barrister. And it never really left me. So I loved my job, but, you know, as I was becoming more senior, you know, I had children, I did go back to that thought about, you know, you only live once and I would really like to make a difference. How's best to do it? 
And I looked around at a number of ways to do it. So I applied for a job at the, so applied to be on, on the Social Mobility Commission, something I had zero skills for uh, and no experience at all. And for some reason they gave me an interview, but I didn't get the job. And I thought about working for a charity. And then I just realized one day that the biggest way to make a difference is through becoming an MP. So I decided that notwithstanding all the problems that one has as an MP, and I was fully aware of some of those, I wanted to become an MP. Um, now, we are speaking as lots of candidates are being selected for the next election. And it's probably the most similar as it, as it has been to 2015 when you entered Parliament in the sense this is the first time. Obviously, we still have a little bit of time for this to go wrong, but I can't imagine it happening. And um, there hasn't been a snap election <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, since yeah. 2015 because uh, 2017, 2019, which obviously affects how quickly candidates are picked and so forth. And what was your candidate selection like? I mentioned in the introduction it was pretty competitive. Yes. So, uh, look, I went to a number of selections and, uh, and how, obviously and that, that wasn't work? the first one that yeah. I went for. When you're looking at like, so when you're looking at, I suppose, what's coming up, uh, you know, MPs retiring and so forth, are you are you thinking about, I suppose, family, where where you think you can move to? Are you thinking about the size of the majority? Because obviously that might uh, suggest how long you might stay as an MP. What goes through your mind? Yeah, of course, you think about all those things and many more. But the reality is, is that they're all irrelevant because what you don't realise when you go down this process is you don't choose your seat your seat chooses you and you don't know. So you might think of those things like, I'd like to live here. This is, you know, close to X, Y, and Z, and I've got this connection. But actually what's most important is how you get on with the people, how you relate to the people, not just in the association, but more broadly, the constituency. And you don't know that. They know that. The association can spot immediately whether you share their values. And uh, so... I love Cambridge Shine. I went to university in Cambridge, but I didn't realize until I was actually selected that actually they, mine and their values were pretty similar. So you get what I think uh, is seen as a safe seat, though you never quite know these days, have uh, certain polls, what is safe and what is not. <laughs> and then you enter parliament in 2015. I suppose coming in, what did you imagine it would be like? Because it gets quite choppy soon after. Oh, but... golly. So I remember <laughs> sitting on the benches in the first sort of few months thinking, this is brilliant and this is going to go on forever. You know, it felt like the Conservative Party were the party that was going to be governing and there was no alternative to that. And then obviously we had the referendum and, and then we had quite a number of tumultuous years. Um, you know, as you say, a number of general elections, uh, some difficult periods, um, some periods of stability. I do think we're now much more in a period of stability. Of course there are challenges and there are economic challenges, but it really doesn't feel like it felt uh, during some of that period. Yeah. How do you know there are going to be so many snap elections? Things? Do you think you you would have um, still gone for it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm restanding. So definitely. Look, the one thing that's, you never know what's going to happen in politics at all. And 
it's been a bit of a journey. I wish it had been smoother, but it hasn't. And you just have to take that and run with it. Now, you ran into some light controversy early on on entering Parliament with a speech you made with a joke about Scots, which you later, I think, gave a gave an apology for. Um, and it was ultimately a reference to history, Scots and slavery. Was that eye-opening? Totally, totally. So in your maiden speech, you usually refer to, you know, your constituency and historical characters that had been there. And I did so, and I referred to Oliver Cromwell, and uh, I said something which I, I totally regret. You said I apologise. I apologised immediately. I wrote to everybody who, who'd who contacted me. I apologised in the National, and I made a mistake. Yeah, I did learn a lot from that lesson. And you can see that a lot, actually, when you kind of have those new intakes, because I suppose it's that difference from, I don't know, just the level of scrutiny, and obviously things being... I suppose the level of authority and also the position you have as an MP is perhaps different to kind of sometimes people coming from other working environments. And I remember having Kemi Badenock on the podcast and she was just saying, you know, <laughs> quite quickly, particularly thinking she's getting lots of attention. It was um, the case that, you know, she started to realise that she had to think differently about things that she was saying publicly. Yes, and you don't... Um, and the audience isn't necessarily the audience. Um, and... People are watching what you say. Sometimes I'm, sometimes uh, you know, I'm not referring to that that instant. But sometimes they take what you've said out of context, and so you do have to be very careful about what you say. I think actually, as a society, people are now more careful about what they say, when they say it, and how they say it. Um, now, I mentioned in the introduction that you've had lots of different briefs, <laughs> um, which is also partly reflective of lots of different leaders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And lots, and lots of reshuffles. I suppose it makes most sense to, I mean, talk about the one that you're currently in, Culture Secretary. But before we get to that, has there been any brief you've had that's particularly surprised you? Um, because you don't get much of a say in a reshuffle as to what you get. And sometimes- much, you don't get any say. <laughs> well, you can say no. Yes, that's true. But then you might that's get nothing. That's true, that's true. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so has there been any brief you had where you actually, you know, you were surprised you were surprised by something you learned from it or how interested you ended up being in it um so I suppose I'm I I've loved all my jobs in different ways I think it's a real privilege and an honor to be in this position where you can make a difference and one of the jobs that I really loved I've loved them all but one of the jobs I really loved was being prisons minister and I think you might look and think that isn't a particularly attractive job it's a very hard job it's an operational job but it's also a job where you can make a difference to people's lives who are at their worst time in their life. So I, what I loved about that, that job was there was an operational element in terms of helping support HMPPS, the prison service. And also there was this role that you have in enacting policy that will change people's lives. And one of the things I'm really proud of what I did is we put together this program where people would get jobs when they came out of prison. And we know that there's a, there's a link between getting employment and reoffending. So you're not only helping the, the offender or ex-offender, you're also helping society by reducing reoffending. And that was a really, the team were fantastic that I was working with. And that was a really, really great thing to work on. And uh, this year, you became the Secretary of State for Culture. I did, yes. Um, what was it like when Rishi asked you? I was uh, quite shocked, obviously delighted. wasn't something I was expecting at all. And it is it's a really great job. Everyone says it's the Ministry of Fun. Uh, are you having fun? 
I'm definitely enjoying it, uh, but it is it is it is a huge amount of fun. It's a really serious department as it's well. Actually huge. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge in terms of the sectors that we represent. So uh, and there, so Rishi's identified five sectors of growth and the uh, the creative industries. Uh, which fall within my department, are one of those. So there's a massive focus on how do we support the creative industries. They're worth £108 billion. And we have put together a sector vision which will help support them. Uh, So it is uh, a very enjoyable job to do, but it's also a serious part of government. And I will get on to the serious, but just on the fun. I mean, for example, this week, I've got to be one of a few journalists who toured with you yes. around the government art collection, um, which is really interesting. I'm the first culture secretary invite <laughs> journalist while I've been around to do that. What art have you picked for your office? So I have a, a fabulous collection uh, of art. It's a mixture of modern and old. Um, the, well, actually, the one I like the most, I didn't pick. I inherited it from my predecessor. And it's a beautiful painting that's uh, very soothing um, by uh, Henry Petha. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a lovely painting. Did you also, um, and we are going to get into the more serious parts of your brief, get to go to, F- you went to F1 recently. I did. Did you, were you on stage? For the- I was on stage. Yeah, I, saw, I was I squirted you. with the champagne. Yeah, exactly. Is it actual champagne? Everyone says it's water it, and it's a stunt one. So I got quite a lot of it on me and it, I can tell you it tasted like champagne, yes. Okay, <laughs> you tried it. Well, I didn't try it. It was all over my face. <laughs> um, yeah, like, that looked like quite a fun part. Yeah, job, it was, so. it was. So that's, I mean, that's another, I mean, it was, a, that was so, I mean, it was lovely to be there. It was a fantastic day, but also using the Formula One, um, and a fantastic part of our, um, our, 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 our sporting uh, prowess in the UK. Um, now, when it comes to, I suppose, things in your brief that listeners will be aware of, and as you say, there's lots of parts of it. Um, one one big thing in the news at the moment is, of course, the BBC. You have at the moment a story about Hugh Edwards, but there's a vacancy for BBC chairman after Richard Sharp stood down. And there's been a bit of a debate about, you know, technically that is an appointment that is approved by the government so it, it can be a political appointment and there are lots of people say oh, actually there shouldn't be political appointments to these roles I wonder what what you thought about that argument so um what very few people know is that the process to appoint the chair of the BBC is actually set out in the charter and it sets out that we need to apply uh, the governance code and in the governance code uh, for this appointment and for many others, there is a role for the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister. And I, I do think that's appropriate, but we are just following the process that's set out that has been followed, you know, by many other governments. And I think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, and I suppose just on that, I mean, it feels at times between the BBC and the government, perhaps less so right now, but, you know, we've all seen like you know, briefing, anonymous briefings, which we often see in the Tory party too, um, BBC staff who, for example, weren't happy about someone like Richard Sharp because they thought, particularly because there was a whole furore around donations and obviously relevant denials in places here, that that's someone who's too close to the Conservative government. What do you think about that in the sense of... If it is a conservative uh, government making use, as you say, the role it's correct for the prime minister to have a role in it. Do you think it should be someone who gives Tory donations? There, uh, I will be appointing the best person to the job, and that is the main thing that I will be looking at when I uh, uh, look at candidates. 
And I think that that's right. We should be picking the person who has the skills and experience to perform in a role that I think is fundamental. You know, the BBC is a really important institution. Um, and I don't think you should be advantaged or disadvantaged by your political persuasions. Now, if we go to the general political picture, we are speaking ahead of free by-elections. Yeah. Um, which some polls suggest may not go well for the Tory party. Um, do you still think there's, you speak to some of your colleagues and they ultimately seem to feel quite pessimistic about the next election. You bat Rishi Sunak. How do you think the Tory party um, can ultimately turn around where it is in the polls? I mean, what do you think it needs to do? I think, so I worked very closely with Rishi. I was a treasury minister when he was prime minister. And I think he's an outstanding prime minister. I think he takes the job extremely seriously. So your favourite Tory prime minister so far? Well, he works. <laughs> often you have a prime minister for the time. Um, I supported Boris Johnson. I supported Theresa May. I joined... You seem to always pick the winners, did you? I very... Not Liz Truss. I, I didn't pick Liz Truss, no. And, uh, and I joined the party because of the call that David Cameron put out uh, and became a candidate uh, as a result of some of the things that he said. But Rishi works incredibly hard... I think he, you know, he, he, he looks at things both in the detail and from a sort of a strategic vision. I think, I think we need to show people that we can deliver. What people care about is their day-to-day lives, the cost of living, can they afford things, what is their life like? And I think we need to deliver on those things and make a difference for them, get over these challenging times. And I think we need to rebuild some trust in us as a party. Um, And I think if we continue to deliver, I think we will earn that trust back. I don't think everyone's rushing to say, I really, really, really want Keir Starmer. Um, I think they're just disappointed in us at the moment. And so we need to build that up over the course of the next year or so. And you can see why they might be a bit disappointed over the past years. <laughs> of course. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realistic uh, and practical and uh, we've got some work to do. I do think it's possible. And I do think that was shifting. So if I look back at the local elections, because obviously I campaigned locally and um, to some extent across the country, but locally I could see the change in people's perceptions uh, of us as that period of time went on. And locally, we actually kept the council. So we we were a Lib Dem target. Uh, we held it by one before the election. We still hold it by one seat. Um, so I, I do think it's possible and achievable, but we've got we've got work to do. Um, and now on to my final question, just as we, we're right on time as well, which is one we ask everyone, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Could be during your political career, law career, school life? So gosh, I think um, I think the, well, I'm generally given very good advice. I, mean, I think yeah, I feel filter- by yours, bad. You sat in the room right now. I, 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 I filter out bad advice. I can't remember. I do remember when I was going for seats. I, I mentioned. Uh, well, I uh, I was told by one MP not to go for uh, South East Cambridgeshire because they wouldn't select me because I was a barrister and the the incumbent was a farmer. So it probably wasn't the seat for me, but you know, it was a seat that I really was very interested in. So I went for it. And of course I got selected. Yeah. I did say it was the last question, but now I'm going to be cheeky because I, I find that interesting advice in the sense that at the moment when I speak to 
some prospective candidates. It's very interesting. They always talk about, oh, this seat's good because they want a future cabinet minister. This seat's good if you want to be a Batman MP, but perhaps it's not at, that's um, not actually the best way to look at it. You don't know. The thing is, you do not know. You do not know what they're looking for. I mean, my experience of back, for going for seats is that generally associations want both. They want you to both be prime minister and turn up to all their events and be the most outstanding local MP as well, which I'm sure everybody, all of us try to try to achieve. But the thing is, you don't know. So, you know, my advice to any candidates is go for them all, go for anyone you want. You know, if you want to be an MP, the people who made it into parliament in the end were the people who just kept going. And uh, I generally find in life that the people who succeed aren't the most talented or the most brilliant. They're the people who are the most focused and the most determined who really want to get something. So my advice to any candidates, if anyone's interested in any advice at all, good advice, not bad, is uh, just keep going. Thank you, Lucy, and thank you for listening.